This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey everyone, Jeff Kasouf here, your host of Kicking Back, and I am excited to bring you our latest guest on this podcast. It's Susie Rack from The Guardian, women's football writer. She just got back from Gothenburg, Sweden, covering the UEFA Women's Champions League final, which Barcelona won 4-0 over Chelsea. She shares her experience as one of the very few people able to watch that game in person in the stadium. We talk about her recent profile story of Emma Hayes and the progression of her storytelling and her becoming a full-time women's soccer writer. And we talk a little bit about the state of media in the game in England and the Women's Super League, where it is, where it needs to go. A little bit of comparing it to the NWSL, but we both agree it's not quite a zero-sum game of which league is better. So stick around for that toward the end. Really interesting chat on some improvements that she thinks needs to be made uh, to the Women's Super League in England. But I hope you enjoy this chat with Susie Rack. Again, I'm your host, Jeff Kasouf. This is Kicking Back, a podcast by The Equalizer, brought to you by Blue Wire Podcast. Please go ahead, rate and review this podcast. Subscribe so you don't miss any forthcoming interviews. And I hope you enjoy this chat. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Kicking Back. Very happy to have with me on this episode Susie Rack from The Guardian, who I'm sure if you're following along with this sport, you have read something from her recently. I just got a notice. I think mostly from your articles, actually, that The Guardian did the pop-up on me that you've read 100 articles this year. So um, please please contribute, which is, is part of our our landscape, I guess, is uh, you've got the hybrid paywall. We've got the kind of hard paywall. But Susie, welcome. Hey, Jeff. How you doing? Good, good. Thank you for uh, joining. I, I know um, Susie's freshly back from the UEFA Women's Champions League final. So I uh, got a little bit of rest, right? Just just in time for a few podcasts. Yeah, just a little bit. Uh, it's been good. Uh, obviously, the, the result didn't help. But, uh, but yeah, no, it's, we managed to get a bit of rest in there. Yeah. So, you know, I want to talk a lot um, on this episode just about, you know, kind of the English game, obviously that game, um, which maybe we'll refer to for some time as that game, if you're, especially if you're a Chelsea fan or a Barca fan, but, um, and, and a little bit of the media landscape. But, you know, you were just starting there. You were one of the few people in that stadium, just the, you know, the sign of the times that we're still in. Um, Barcelona wins 4 0 takes that 4-0 lead within 36 minutes, up 1-0 35 seconds in. I guess that first one, you know, you're sitting there. What was that like just to to witness as somebody kind of objectively there to cover the game? Yeah, well, I missed it. So that was, that was a good start. Because, um, I, I, I mean, I was literally like, you know, obviously I'd done lots of prep and stuff, but I was literally sort of, you know, getting ready to write, you know, settling, checking that I had everything open that I wanted open. And I, like... 
look up and there's just this shocked stunned silence um so yeah but obviously saw the replays um and you know the fallout but um uh and emma hayes oh it was quite it was very weird set up in that stadium actually because there was no dugout so there was um the, the the players uh on the bench and the staff were like literally sitting in the stand right in front of us so we were right behind the chelsea uh lot just by coincidence you know we could pick where we wanted to sit in the press box but but we happened to be sitting right right behind them and then emma hayes was sort of on her own in um in the technical uh area with, and, and there wasn't really that you know there was then like a concrete barrier between the the pitch and her and and the team and that they had to keep opening this big door in to let her or anyone else in and out of it so it was quite a weird setup in that she was just this lone figure there so you could really like hone in on her reaction to things and she was just like very much sort of you know this kind of bemused well <laughs> you know what can you do about that sort of look on her face and I think that's how everyone felt to a certain extent obviously you know being there specifically I, I say specifically to covering that I've been to the past other than the one in Spain last year because the pandemic I've been to the past um the two before that when there wasn't an English interest in terms of teams other than obviously players but um so we would have covered it regardless but you know obviously with Chelsea being there and the English interest you know we're essentially there to cover Chelsea and it was a bit of a shock for us to see you know them kind of fall behind so quickly partly because they had ridden their luck so much to uh, like throughout the throughout the tournament to that point, um, that it was an own goal off loopholes who um, had scored the goal off of her face against Bayern in the first leg to get the away goal felt very sort of poetic um, in in the way it happened. But yeah, I mean, I think after that, you sort of felt well. We we always knew Chelsea were going to have to score. Um, you know, we always knew that you know Barcelona are going to score. I think they ha- they they had not scored once in their last twenty three um, Champions League games, so we always knew that that w- that was inevitable. So, in a sense, I think the, the players possibly felt that too. But it was, I think, the second goal that was that was really really critical in that game. In that, um, you know, I've, I've watched that penalty decision back and back and back, and every single time I change my mind about whether it's a penalty or not. So you can't begrudge it being given to that to that in that sense in that you know it's not clear it's really not um at times I think um Hermoso ran into uh uh into Lupo's leg at times I think um Lupo's left their training leg in too long so in that sense you know you you it's it could have been given it could have not been given and I don't think I'd have a disagreement either way but I think that was the point at which the game changed because then it became a task that was just going to be beyond Chelsea so it was very disappointing to have travelled that all of that way for uh, a game to be over so so quickly. Um, the border uh, police were joking with us about it, which was um, both annoying and sort of cool that they actually knew that the game had taken place. Um, but uh, but yeah, so um, I mean, it was hard to be disappointed in Chelsea's performance, given that Barcelona's was so great um, and their play was just majestic to watch. And I was actually really glad that. Bon Matty scored that really, really beautiful kind of team goal for the third because I felt like that was a more deserving goal of their play, and it was, you know it's good to see them actually score a goal reflective of of the way they play. So yeah, great experience. Very weird in the stadium um, to you know be the only ones there, bar like a handful of officials and 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 staff around the place. Um, 
a little bit annoying that they face the trophy celebration away from us, up the opposite, uh, the the other side, uh, facing Abramovich and the UEFA officials in the stands rather than us. I thought, you know, sure they could have found a way for us all to be on the same side. Um, but uh, other than that, yeah, like, I mean, just very lucky to be there, really. I mean, for days we thought none of us would be able to go um, because the quarantine rules in, Sp- in uh, Sweden are quite strict. So, we were going to have to quarantine for seven days, I think it was, before the game in Sweden. And at that point, we thought, well, that's it. No one's going. Um, but the Swedish FA um, ended up being able to sort um, sort of exemption letters for us to get us out of that quarantine. So I'm in quarantine now back in the UK. We've got a quarantine for um, uh, 10 days here, but five if we uh, if we paid to test a release. So I'm in quarantine for five days, but we didn't have to quarantine in Sweden, which was really, really great. So, yeah, I mean, it was good to be there because I think it was important to be able to bring a little bit of that atmosphere uh, back and into reports and stuff. Um, but, yeah, obviously not the desired result, but hard, yeah. to, hard to be angry at Barca. Yeah, rare. Uh, I'm on um, 15 months or so without a, a match and I, I'm getting close, I guess, because, you know, second shot and all that. But I haven't actually really thought hard about the the when and where. But um Part of that is is still being in the Zoom world. Even if you go, you're you're stuck in, you know, the same access you would have at home. But um, you mentioned the color, and I think that is that's the thing that's been on my mind certainly. And and you know, I wonder if if you um, you mentioned Emma Hayes was a bit bemused um, having that front row seat, one of the few people. Imagine you could hear a good amount with how empty it was, and, and certainly see it. Um, what was Maybe by the time at four nil, or, or just throughout the game. I mean, what were, what were you seeing on the sideline from Chelsea specifically? I guess, and maybe from Barcelona in terms of that up front in person. How were they handling the fact that you know objectively the game was over, right? Yeah. Um, no, it's, it is really interesting to be that close. It does make a massive difference, um, and I don't think fans necessarily realise that when they're talking about well, you know, oh, people are dying and and you're going to games, and you know, there's I hugely agree with that, you know, but I figure if, if football is considered essential uh, enough to be played, um, then covering it is essential because otherwise what's the point in it going on? Um, so uh, the, the point on which I really noticed it, just to throw back a little bit, was um, uh, Arsenal were being very restrictive over access earlier on in the season, um, very frustratingly. Um, and we went up to Manchester to cover Manchester United v Arsenal. And we could hear Joe uh, Montemuro really clearly on the touchline. He was very, very quiet. And he went and sat in the back of his dugout. And then the next game we went to was, I think it was Arsenal Spurs, I want to say, at Boreham Woods. And that was the first time we'd been let into the uh, into Arsenal Stadium in um, like this season. So it was like a couple of months into the season, the first time we were let in. And he was completely different on the touchline and we just wouldn't have noticed that. We wouldn't have picked that up on that if, um, if we hadn't been there. Um, so in Manchester, he was very withdrawn, very quiet. Um, and then no, it was Chelsea. It was Chelsea. It wasn't Spurs. It was Chelsea. So they lost to United and then they played Chelsea and he was absolutely transformed. And, you know, we, we asked him about it afterwards and he said it was the Italian in him coming out and they played really, really well in that game. And it was a very, very different performance, but I don't think any of those questions would have been asked if we hadn't been there to draw that out of him. Cause we hadn't, we wouldn't have seen that response. I think that's the stuff you kind of miss when you're not there. So it, yeah, I think sometimes fans miss the significance of 
of being at a game and have and f- feeling the emotions of the game as as you're there from the players and stuff. But yeah, in in Gothenburg, it was um, it was weird because um, Emma was very quiet, <laughs> uncharacteristically quiet, which I guess you can you know imagine. I mean, she was you could hear her yelling the occasional things across to players, but um, uh, yeah, she was she was very reserved, um, and I think that you know it was. <laughs> A bit of a sort of resign, like a, a sort of, you know, well, there, there's not much I can do to influence this to a certain extent, especially once they've gone too behind. Um, and lots of just sort of quiet talking with her staff who had to lean over this concrete barrier to speak to her. Um, but yeah, I mean, she didn't make changes in that, you know, taking loopholes off and switching to 3-4-3 seemed to shore things up a little bit. But by that point, um, you know, that was half time. The game had already been lost. So it's hard to know whether that was effective or whether Barcelona just sort of sat back a little bit and, you know, thought, well, we can we can take it easy from here on in. In terms of Barcelona, I mean, they were pretty much celebrating having won the trophy from the first half an hour. Um, and yeah, for the part, the last, I'd say, 15 minutes of the game were literally singing, chanting, celebrating, swinging start scarves in, you know, in their... Um, uh, all the subs in their in their like little section of the stands, like they were fans. It was it was actually very cool because it was like having a little pocket of fans there. Um, and then as it got closer and closer to the final whistle, they were all like on their feet, like leaning over the seats, ready to leg it onto the pitch. Um, so yeah, very different. Um, and yeah, Cortez was very very animated in his box. Um, you know, real kind of driving them on. And yeah, I, it was it was quite a contrast with Emma, who is usually like extremely vocal. Um, but I, yeah, I think uh, there was a point at which she just didn't know didn't know what to say anymore. Yeah, very different. It sounds like than than her usual um, sideline behavior. Um, what, what do you think? Um, like here in the U.S., we have. I'm very thankful to say now full access to WSL games. We you know we do a little bit of work with Otto Football has made that happen. Um, we have some access to to French league, a little bit in Germany, um, and and Spain not so much yet. I think that's changing, but we don't get to see a lot of of. Spanish football uh, on the women's side. And, and even um, you probably saw some of it on Twitter, the idea of like who has the champions league final is this yearly frustration. And we figured it out two days beforehand because nobody actually knew, even though they had it. Um, and hopefully that changes with what's changing next year with rights centralization. But um, I don't know how much you get to see sort of domestic Spanish football. I'm sure you see more just through champions league than we do here. But like, do you think that, Barca before this game was appreciated enough. I mean, we're, we're kind of maybe by English speaking media. And I put like ourselves in the U S in that because the access isn't quite there from a TV standpoint, maybe even from a player standpoint. And there was this reaction. I think over here, I saw a lot of like, look at this team. This is the best team in the world, you know, better than the men's Barca team. And, all of that was true before Sunday as well. You know, you look at 26 wins from 26 games, but um, maybe, you know, over here for some reason, maybe we just know the players better that like Chelsea seemed to be the focus a little bit over here. I could see obviously why it would be in, in England, but like, do you think there was an appreciation enough for Barca before this or, or is there now after that result? Yeah, it's definitely changed because obviously the game was so so emphatic and the way they played was just wonderful but um I wouldn't say 
underestimated is probably a bit strong for me to say, but I would say it's like, like you said, lack of access plays a big, big part. Um, and I'd say it, it's the lack of access that just put a little asterisk next to their name more than um, necessarily anyone thinking, you know, that they weren't a good team. So, you know, because stats can only tell you so much. Um, and we all know that, the you know, uh, the um, La Liga Femenina isn't um, a fully professional league. It's a like a sort of part-time uh, league, half of it, and then a fully professional league, half of it. And that's changing next year, I, I think. Um, but that's, all of those things sort of put that little asterisk there and make, make, make you wonder, well, yes, they can do it week in, week out against, you know, half of their league being semi-professional, but can they do it? Um, against some of the best teams in Europe. And that, that asterisk was removed <laughs> on, on Sunday. I think that's the difference is that it was just the unknown more than necessarily anyone saying, well, you know, they're not a good team. I think it was just, we don't know if they're a good team yet. Um, you know, I've been able to watch little bits here and there. You know, there's ways of watching games, isn't there? Um, you find ways. Uh, but the majority of people can't. <laughs> the majority of people don't go out of their way, don't cover football like we do, and don't go out of their way to try and um, to try and get a hold of those games. So, you know, particularly in the build up to this, I've gone back and watched some of their their older games as well, um, and that, uh, you know, again, some wonderful, wonderful football. But until you see them do it against some of the biggest and best in Europe, it's hard to hard to say just how far they've come on. I was at the final two years ago where they were, you know, absolutely smashed by by Leon in like almost mirror fashion as to the way they they undid Chelsea uh this this weekend just gone. Um and you know the the the, the sort of cohesion between the sides between then and now is 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 just like really, really dramatically uh improved and really, really great to see. And that that progress has been steady it's it's been a it has literally been a sort of straight line up there hasn't been any dip in that it's been all progress all the way um and yes yeah, so I think I think that the problem is when you've got um a, you know a team like Chelsea who are you know an English team the players on the whole all speak English um you know for you in the US you've got Sam Kerr there Emma Hayes obviously you know found a coaching feat in the US um, a number of the players have played out there. There's, you know, interest from the past in, you know, Kaz Carney and Katie Chapman and players like that as well. Um, so I think, and, you know, Crystal Dunn and stuff. So I think from that point of view, when you've got the voices there in the language that you speak, uh, you know, it, they're going to end up being the more dominant team in, like, the overall narrative in the build-up to the game. Um, but... I think that is just the nature of the fact that, you know, we are English speak well, for us in particular as well, being English media covering an English team, it, there's always going to be a majority of the coverage geared towards the team that is representative of the fans that we are servicing in our, in our country, no matter how great we think Barcelona are, um, you know, there's always going to be that element. You know, Molly Hudson at the times did a really wonderful piece with um, Vicky Lasada, who I also did one too. Um, but in Molly's piece, she mentioned that she that you know she wanted to uh win the champions league to stop chelsea matching uh, arsenal's quadruple uh because she played for arsenal so like you know there there's english interest in 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 that barcelona side too in that sense in that there's a, you know a few players that have played played over here at various points and wanted to do 
do things, uh, you know, beat Chelsea for, for reasons uh, of their own. Um, and yes, yeah, so I, I think it's just, it's inevitable. It's like a build up to a World Cup, you know, or build up to 2019. The narrative coming out of the English press is that England are going to win the World Cup because that's the narrative that Phil Neville has given us in press conferences. That's the narrative players are delivering. That's what they're saying to us. And that's, so that's how we've got to report it. Uh, because that that's what they are trying to get everyone to believe um and that's you know it can come across as arrogant it can come across as a bit self-indulgent but it's just you know it's the audience you're serving and it's you know how you how you serve them and I think there's there's a balance isn't there you want to you want to do that without it it coming across as um dismissive as your of your opponent um as much as possible I think it, it, yeah, that's the balance, isn't it? It's finding a way to um, to talk about the potential of one team whilst not underestimating the threat of of, of the other. Um, and for me, like covering the game, like Barcelona have been one of the best teams in Europe for a while, and I was just really excited to see where they where they sort of slotted in on the on the sort of European scale now. Um, and you know whether yeah whether they could transfer it to the very very top of the game in Europe, which um, they've done. Put their self, you know, now they've put a target on their backs. It's going to be really exciting. I think they could potentially dominate um, the Champions League in the way that Lyon have for a number of years, which is is you know exciting because it's a different brand of football and a different way of playing and a, a different set of players. Um, and all of that, all of that is just going to push the game forward generally because people will have to try and match it. Balance is a good word. I think it's it's something um, you know we over here. We, I think I try to stop myself sometimes from framing everything through a U.S. national team perspective. Even you know, we had the several players who went over to the FAWSL for the season, and um, you know that obviously, you know, in some way, in some small part, drove some of our increased coverage of that league for obvious reasons. And you know, you have that. Um, that push pull and and that balance of, you know, what is the story and what's most interesting and how do you give it, do it justice, but also, you know, um, I'm thankful that kind of I and we have established an outlet that's not click driven. And I'm sure that's, you know, similar for you where, you know, I, I have seen firsthand some things, you know, where everything is like, where are the page views? And I know a lot of places still operate like that. And that leads you down that road of like, you know, instead of a Barcelona story, you produce 10 useless things about like where Sam Kerr got coffee because you just need some paid views. But, um, you know, so we try to balance that too of like, you know, people do read U.S. national team stuff a thousand times more than they do pretty much anything else. But, you know, that's not the only story, right? And and I mean, Chelsea's obviously a bigger story than just what a couple of us players are doing over there. So it's interesting, probably similar, similar balance for, for you as well with, like you said, you're essentially there to cover Chelsea, but you know, the story on the day in in many ways is Barcelona. So it's, it's an interesting sort of push pull, uh, maybe pull back the curtain a little bit for listeners um, on the media front. But um, that's something that, that I wanted to talk about a little bit with you is is some of your work and, and obviously, um, you know, most recently or, or somewhat recently anyway, since before the game, you know, you profiled Emma Hayes, which I think, you know, um, oh, one sec, my, it says my internet's unstable. I lost you for a couple of seconds. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, 
let me let me restart what I'm saying. And sorry, I think uh, uh, similar to you, I have one gigabyte best internet you can get, but um, it it'll drop for like two seconds every couple of yeah. hours. So, um, all right, I'll restart my my rambling there. Um, Claire, I'm not sure where it dropped, so <laughs> I'm just going to pick up sort of in a semi decent spot here. Um, yeah, it's an it's an interesting balance, and I think one thing that you you wrote recently that I want to talk about was uh, your Emma Hayes story, which, um, you know, from a, a writer perspective, I thought it was brilliant. And then I also, I was like, you know, that's such a good approach because, um, you know, I know that access is something that's been shifting. You mentioned the arsenal situation of not being able to get in a stadium. The game is growing with that comes some, some challenges. And I imagine part of that is not only that it's a great way to tell the story, but do it differently. And, and also, get to some people that can talk and, you know, you can access and have time to speak with. So um, I guess, you know, firstly, just like, can you kind of briefly walk me through, walk listeners through that story? Because Emma Hayes, they might know, they might know her story, but that kind of told it in a different way, which was really cool. Yeah. So I had this idea just before the semi-final that I want, well, I knew I wanted to do a big profile, big profile on her and to speak to as many people as possible. Um, about her background but um I didn't really know how I was going to get to those people uh, particularly her family um and in the end I you know I approached the che- the the Chelsea press officer and asked and and she ran it past Emma and Emma was was good with it which surprised me because you know um not not all players or managers are going <laughs> to just hand over the phone numbers to to their immediate family members but um I think it was the fact that I was very clear that I wanted to tell their story because she talks about them a lot and she talks about their influence on her as a manager and um and how they've enabled her to be able to do what she does particularly as a as a you know newish mum and things like that too um so like I think appealing on for for you know to be able to speak to them on that basis of the fact that you always talk about their influence. I want to. I want to talk to them about how they how they have influenced you. Um, I want them to tell your story. Was was the way to to kind of get in there. Um, and then it was just I wanted to uh, like I wanted to know the stuff that that I didn't know about Emma Hayes. Um, you know, I knew that she had gone to America. I knew that she had worked under Vic Akers. I knew that she had had an injury that stopped her from playing and that was how she moved into management. But I knew just no detail beyond that. Um, and I thought, you know, we've had so many profiles of Emma about, you know, what a good um, pl- uh, player manager she is, um, how maternal she is, um, how important winning is to her. But we've got no background on how she became that person um, and, and what informed that. Um, and I, I spoke to her. I want to say I spoke to her. That no, it's just, I spoke to her sisters first, and one of her sisters, Rebecca, was the first person I spoke to, and she was just brilliant. Um, and the only way I can describe Emma Hayes's two sisters, Rebecca and Victoria, is like Emma Hayes. I mean, they're they're, they're basically three peas in a pod. Um, like very very similar personalities, senses of humour um very similarly open so like speaking to them was really really great and um they started from very very beginning um of you know what she was like as a kid what she was like as a player and that's stuff that we just don't ever hear um I just it's so many 
I've written so many Chelsea stories this season. I wanted to write something that I hadn't read before. Um, and there were, you know, it's like particularly about her time in the US, like she's, we, we've always had snippets of, of from her of things that have been influential to her life. So getting sacked by Chicago, she has talked about as being like a seminal moment and taught her a lot about failure and, and, what it means and uh, and how you learn from things and stuff, but no one ever knows, you know, the story of uh, of what it was like around that time of how she went out there. No one knows the story of her studying uh, to be a spy before she went into coaching, um, but she has mentioned it here and there in press conferences. So they think they're little snippets of things that I just wanted to get more into. And I mean, I had, I want to say. Put it this way, I had so much transcript that once I had cut it down to all of the best bits of transcript, I had 14,000 words. And the article is 2,000 words long. Um, and when I actually wrote it up um, as short as I possibly could, it was 4,500. So then it took an over half cut to make this point. So I'm actually going to turn it into a chapter for um, there's a, a women in football anthology of women's football writing coming out. So I'm going to turn. Um, some of the stuff I got from this into a into a bit of a deeper chapter on Emma because there's so many stories in there that did not make the cut um, that are just super super interesting for anyone that you know has followed this manager's amazing career. But yeah, um, I really enjoyed writing it. It was really nice to be able to write something that I you know as I was writing it and it, as I'm sitting there thinking like I had no idea she had managed. Uh, Abby Wambach. I had no idea she'd managed Carly Lloyd at Chicago. I had no idea she'd worked with, I had no idea she had taken Megan Rapino out of college and drafted her a second in the draft. Like all of that kind of stuff, um, you know, that she worked with Christia, Christiani, all of those, like Formiga, no idea that she had managed all of those players. Um, I think because we've got a very obviously England, London centric view of her, you know, we view her as, oh, the, the, the one who won the quadruple with Vic Akers and then worked with you know, Claire Rafferty and Katie Chapman and Kaz Carney and players like that. We don't we don't ever look at the the, the kind of huge history she's got in the game. So um yeah, I wanted to get in as much of the stuff that people haven't heard before as possible, really. It sounds like you have the base of a biography, let alone a, a chapter in a book. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much a few people have said that and yeah, yeah probably do. Yeah. Well, I, I guess you could circle back with her on that, uh, maybe maybe in a few years or post career or something. But uh, once you won the Champions League, yeah, there, there you go. The the long road to the Champions League. I remember um, there, there's some cool memories of. It's funny you say that you have the London centric view because in some ways, you know, we have that U.S. centric view. I remember Chicago quite well. Um, I still remember a specific game. Um, in that season out out in New Jersey that I was at and I, I was interviewing her and um, as as things go I hate when leagues find coaches for just saying basic things but she's had something about the refs which will tell you they've been a, a question mark here for 12 years or so and you know got got fined that game and, and I remember her after you mentioned Wombach and that that crew um, you know I, I remember her after uh, well it wouldn't have been Wombach in that year but but uh, the flash won the championship and it was kind of before these times where everything had gotten so big that, um, you know, I think I've told this story before, maybe not on this pod, hopefully not repetitive on this pod, but you know, the, the press was just kind of in the same bar as the flash players, which at that time is 
Marta, Morgan, Sager, like, you know, and, you know, Emma was there with the staff and um, it's just, it's bizarre to think about now because the game even in 10 years or so has grown to the point that I don't think that would happen now, mm-hmm. uh, which is, is interesting, but it was just, some, there were some funny, uh, some funny times there, plenty of drinks to be had <laughs> after a, a championship, but um that, that was cool. That was a really good story. If, if you haven't read it and we're, we're talking about it, you're wondering what the heck we're talking about. Um, go to the guardian, find, find Susie on, uh, on Twitter, scroll a little bit. And I, well, you've got the bio, you've got your, um, your author role right in your bio, right? So yeah, click, click that there and, and have a read of that, that, um, profile. Cause it's, it's really good and an approach, you know, a really nice approach to, um, telling somebody's story without necessarily even speaking to them. Um, in some ways, so. The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff, and it affects everything. Which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed, Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcast. Um, what, what about, um, you know, you've done a, a lot of memorable stories and, and this one uh, maybe more on the, you know, the one we just spoke about on the, I don't know, feel good is the term, but, you know, a nice story, but you've also had some, you know, things that are probably uh, necessary, but not fun to write in, in terms of, um you know, exposing corruption or, or even worse, um, you know, a lot of impactful stuff, I guess, uh, with, with abuse in Afghanistan. I know you've written, um, you know, recently about um, some changes that FIFA fifth pro have made for, for moms in the game. You know, is there something that stands out in, in all these things that you've done for you that, you know, you're particularly proud of, or maybe that was a piece or, or a few pieces that, you know, you worked especially hard on, or, or maybe even took a lot of, you know, some of these things that people don't realize it, it takes a lot to publish something like this because you know that there's backlash coming for something. I mean, is there something that stands out for you for things you've written? Yeah. I mean, obviously the the story on the Afghanistan women's national team and the abuse of the players by the president of the federation um, was huge in the, obviously, I mean, ultimately it ends up um, getting him banned for life from, from football, um, but I think that the thing that I really loved about that story is I'd fallen into a little bit of a rut of just, you know, match reports, interviews, profiles. And I've always been into like social justice and activism. Like before I was a journalist, um, you know, I led a uh, walkout against the Iraq war from my secondary school. Um, five times we failed before we managed to get through the school gates. Um you know, I like worked for a youth campaign against uh, unemployment that, you know, campaigned against closure of youth facilities for free education, um, for um, a higher minimum wage for young people, all of that kind of stuff. So like, I've always been into like doing good for want of a better way of saying it. Um, and like it was that story that made me realize that I could do that a bit more in sports journalism because you don't necessarily you know yes you can do that in journalism you can do that in news journalism but you don't necessarily associate being able to impact things uh for the better um 
in in sports journalism per se so my favorite stuff to write is the stuff that um that has the potential to impact things for the better and make this game better because I do care about this game you know I grew up watching women's football as well as men's I was very lucky in the Arsenal ladies trained across the road from me in my park for like a year or something um across the road from my council estate and so like I built up a bond with them early on um as a team and you know would go to the Arsenal men's double winners parades and there's the women's team behind on their bus with their trophies um so they were they were always there so I always had an interest in women's football and I always cared about it so um not just the big stories like Afghanistan I like doing like the opinion pieces that you know challenge some of the things that the FA are doing or some of the decisions that are being made or some of the like idea the ideological uh drivers of the game you know the this this idea that we that we should build a Premier League Mark Two through the WSL, um, and that that's the only way of doing things. I like challenging those kind of ideas, um, and now I've reached a point where I've got you know a platform big enough to challenge those and actually be listened to a little bit. Which is you know even if it just makes someone think for a second about the the choices they're making, then you know I'm glad that I can at least be the little person on the shoulder saying no do this um a little bit um but yeah obviously Afghanistan was huge in that like um they had no way of um speaking out about their abuse in their own country um you know no way of going through the their own legal system no way of going through their own um police uh, service um no way of going through their own media uh, because you know the threat of death and um, uh, and just going missing was very very real, um, and so it was great to be able to give them my platform and my um, you know my um, space in the Guardian to be able to put their story out on a global scale in a way that would get have an impact in their country but also put put international pressure on it so that you know if suddenly a load of girls disappear it's noticed um so yeah from that point of view that's that's why i liked it and i i think the the reason why it it we did it we we did so well with that story and it was so impactful was that it was never about the story for me and that's the thing that i was saying to Khalida from the very very start when we were talking was like look if if we reach a point where we say you know this is too risky we can't publish this because it puts one of the girls at risk then then we won't publish it you know it's not about the story it's about how what how best can we use um the international media profile that the guardian has to improve the conditions for these girls um and i really like that because my bosses were completely like you know on the same page with that as well you know i had one of my editors phoning up and saying this sentence in this quote will that identify this player in any way to anyone, including the president himself? And so I'd go back and I'd check and they'd come back and they'd say, no, it's okay, you can put that in because of this, this and this. And it's um, just that that care and consideration towards the who is in the story and not just going, boom, there it is, and, um, you know, be damned the consequences because it's a great story. Um yeah, so like the long term view on it and the the importance of the impact it had. That that's the stuff I like doing. I like doing the stuff that actually has a bit more meaning than than a football match. Well, yeah, a little bit scary in a way, I'm sure too. I mean, it, it's nervy sometimes to break a a transfer rumor or something. But but you're speaking about 
you know, like you said, people's lives literally, you know, potentially on the line if, if something is handled wrong, um, which is, is, you know, uh, puts things in a, in a whole new perspective, as, as you kind of said there. Um, what, what you mentioned previously, you know, being sort of um, into, into social justice and, and maybe from a young age, and you also mentioned Arsenal Women Training by you. What, what actually got you into, you know, at what point did you say, I want to be a football writer? It's a good question because like, I had never ever considered it as a as something that I could do. And I, like it's weird because I always followed football, I always followed Arsenal, I watched them. You could hear if on our council estate we were on, lived on the fourth floor. If you open the balcony windows on a match day, uh, Arsenal men's, you could hear the cheers when goals were scored, like across the whole area because we you know we weren't that far away from Highbury. Um, and yeah, so I was always around football. I read the back pages. Like, I read. I used to go around to the corner shop on Sundays and pick up the Sunday mirror for my dad uh, and a chocolate bar as allowed on Sundays um, and walk home. And I would read the back pages as well. Um, and, but I never, ever, I, I don't know who I thought wrote about football, um, but I never, ever considered it as something I would do. And I actually did architecture at university. I wanted to be an architect from when I was about eight years old. Um, I geared all of my education towards being an architect. Um, I studied I did the three-year degree at university and then I worked in architecture for a year doing practice. So I can always go back and do the master's if I want. Um, but like I've always followed football and I I started writing a little bit about football when I was quite young in that I, I wrote a letter to the Guna, the Arsenal fanzine when I was like 14 and one star letter. And then I, you know, I started writing for a couple of other fanzines and, um, yeah, like I just always been around football, but I never ever considered it a career option. It was only when, after I sort of got a bit disillusioned with architecture um, and you know, sort of profit motive of putting sort of desirable spaces for people um, below uh, profitable spaces, so small spaces, <laughs> housing wise and stuff. Um, just like I got a bit disillusioned with that whole ethos to the to the market of of architecture and. Um, I started working for um, a couple of newspapers doing layout, basically, because obviously I come from a design background in architecture. Um, and it was at one of those little papers that someone went, I was always chatting with a sport center. We were all every morning we to talk about the day's games and stuff. And it was a very little paper and they were like, you know, do you want to train up to fill in for the sports editor now and again and go to games and stuff? Um, and so I started going to the odd game for them in my spare time. They, you know, obviously got me the access and I was being paid for them for my layout and my editing. But, um, yeah, like I would just go and cover the games for free on the side um, and sort of started building up a love of it. And then that, it was only really then that my eye was open to the fact that, wait a minute, this is something <laughs> this is something I could do. And this was when I was, you know, like sort of 25. Um, so, yeah, it was a weird route in, but I, I sort of fell into it in that people noticed that I like sport and could edit and could write and could <laughs> lay out. And were like, do you want to have a go at this? Because we don't, you know, we're, they were quite a small paper. They were more news and international focused. So they didn't have a big sports staff or anything. So it's just like, do you want to help? Do you want to be the one that fills in for the sports editor when he's not around? <laughs> and so he can have a bit of time off because no one else wants to or can do it. Um, but yeah, it was sort of that work that, that, gave me the bug I suppose and um made me want to made me want to kind of pursue it um and it was that was also when I started writing about women's football properly as well because um I remember I went and covered 
uh, Kelly Smith's last game, um, her test and and her testimonial, um, and obviously having grown up watching Arsenal women from quite a young age, very emotional response to um, her going, um, and that did really well online. And I was, you know, right, but I was writing about all sports. I like wrote about um, uh, Serena Williams and sexism. I I wrote about um, the Bundesliga and the refugee crisis and stuff like that's the, I was doing that kind of social justice sports stuff um back then um and then it was I had been doing shifts at the Guardian um just layout shifts a day a week and um Anna Kessel was asked by the then head of sport whether there was anyone who could write regularly about women's football and this was in 2017 just before the Euros and she said sort of you know kind of what, what you're talking about you've got Susie sitting over there doing layout and she's writing for other places uh, about women's football and other things get her to do it um and so they got me in and then yeah literally been writing for them ever since and then gradually gone from just a column a week to now being full-time contracted to write for them which is great but um a weird 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 route in having never ever considered it as something people did although if I if I realized I probably would have wanted to do it from when I was a kid but I just didn't even know it was something that that people did well I think that's maybe a a see it be it type of situation and action there um what what is the state of media do you think for women's football in England because from here you know we have I can think of myself Meg do this full-time uh, a lot of folks, I think, I don't know the exact personal situation, but who are trying to do it full-time, not necessarily that there's not necessarily a, an opportunity at the moment because of just a lack of, of publications that are dedicating actual full-time, you can do this for a living access um, or, or opportunity. And it seems like in some ways, there's actually more opportunities like that in England at the moment. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but, um, and, and that's coupled with the fact that there are big media outlets now here that are suddenly paying attention to to women's soccer, women's sports, kind of dipping in still at bigger moments, but maybe more frequently. And it's just created a really interesting time here, I'd say that, you know, you have the people who've done this for a long time. Now you've got some interest from bigger places. Maybe sometimes that means teams and leagues are attracted to those big places, even though they're, you know, just suddenly around. And I think it sounds like from your story, you've seen all of those. You have that that platform now, but you know, you've seen kind of building your way up. I know there's a lot of folks, you know, that are are doing the same still now in England. So, I mean, what's it like? What's the media landscape like for women's football in general terms in England? Yeah, uh, good question. So. so- um, like I said, I started writing for the Guardian on women's football in like just before the Euros in 2017, and then that was I, I think that was like the first moment like a big newspaper had, and probably you could include broadcast as well, had switched from um, just sort of I, I, I always describe it as reactive coverage, like oh there's an FA Cup final, we'll cover that, we'll send someone to that, or oh there's a World Cup, yeah we'll definitely send someone to that. Uh, but to be to it, that was the change from going from that to we're going to cover women's football every single week in a column, regardless of what's going on. So, you know, the league day to day, week by week will be covered. Um, So I think that was sort of the first moment. And then the next moment was when Katie Wyatt was taken on by the Telegraph full time in, I want to say like October, 2018. So just over a year after that, um, and by that point, I was pretty much writing full time, but I was also still doing the odd layout shift and subbing shift on the desk. 
Um, and then from then, it was the World Cup had a massive impact. So then you've got, um, well, the Telegraph launching their women's sports supplement at some point around then where you've got Molly McKelvey and Fiona being taken on as women's sports writers, not just football, but alongside Katie. Um, the BBC put a bit more focus in. Um, the Sun hired someone full-time after that. Um, the Daily Mail took on someone full-time after that. At the times, Molly was taken on as a trainee and works on the men's and women's game, but with a big focus on, on the women's game. Um, so there was a real, real shift um, around the World Cup. And I think given that we've got the Euros coming up and they're in England, that's been a bit of a like driver for people to keep keep people on and expand those roles. Um, so we've now probably, there's probably, you could probably get up to 10 people working full time in like the mainstream media. Um, and what is nice is that, you know, you mentioned, you know, that you obviously you started um, way, way, way before there was any big media interest in the same way, you know, Kieran Tatham here did here and Sophie Lawson did here and Girls on the Ball and Jen O'Neill um, producing She Kicks magazine and things like that. Um, and what's really good is I think um, there's a really good balance here and there's a lot of respect for those people that have been doing this for a very long time and put a lot into it um, and have driven the the growth of the game to the point at which that we've been able to sort of come in and, and, and work full time on it. Um, and, you know, we're, we're quite protective, I would say. I mean, I definitely am. And I think some others are of them um, and the role they've played and if they get cut out of anything I, like, I'm the first to sort of be up in arms about it and say wait a minute no um, you know Girls on the Ball for example their website is one of my first port of calls for accurate information on games uh, because they are often more accurate on scores on transfers on tables than the BBC or the FA website are themselves and so you know if there's ever a point at which a, you know a club is like oh, we've not got enough space, so we're going to stick in just Sky and the BBC and the Guardian and the Telegraph, and oh, I'm afraid you guys can't get in. Um, I think there's a big responsibility on us to say, wait a minute, no. Um, you've got to you've got to remember um, you know, the role that these guys play. We've got bigger audiences, but they have got specialist audiences that have, um, uh, that are, uh, you know, a, if I've got 10,000 followers on Twitter or whatever it is, they're not just women's football followers. They're a bit of everything. If they've got 25,000 followers on Twitter or whatever it is, they are dedicated women's football fans. And that is, you know, a massively, a massively important audience for you. Um, and like, I think sometimes they like your clubs and, uh, and governing bodies sort of need reminding of the role, you know, that girls on the ball, equaliser soccer, et cetera, play in, uh, in sort of growing the game um, and providing uh, for, um, providing more regular coverage for fans as well and a more diverse range of coverage. You know, I've not been to a single championship game this season. I hate that. Like, if I had my way, I would go to loads of championship games, but there's, I'm only one person for the Guardian covering the whole of the league, Louis occasionally dipping in. Um, and, you know, girls on the ball, for example, were able to get a much better depth of coverage um, than, than I am, even though I'm doing it full-time and they're doing it in addition to full-time jobs um, just because they're not 
totally driven by editorial decisions and stuff too. Um, and I think, yeah, that's invaluable. So, yeah, I think there is a big responsibility on us to drive that. Um, in terms of the landscape generally, um, like I said, strong. It's getting stronger. Um, and I think that is partly the Euros that is, that is pushing it forward. Um, it'd be interesting to see how much of that is sustained beyond the Euros and whether it still holds up, you know, kind of going into the World Cup in 2023. I think a big part of it will be how well England do. And I'm not overly hopeful, to be honest, um, at the moment. We'll have to see how Serena does. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, the Euros could actually be quite bruising potentially for for England. So I am... yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how well um, how well the the women's football media landscape holds up because the media landscape generally in sport is bad. Um, you know the cuts are like vast, and I would say it's probably one of the very very few growth areas in sports journalism at the moment. Um, so at the moment there's opportunity, but whether it whether it exists beyond that, and this yeah obviously the Sky broadcast deal with and the BBC broadcast deal the WSL next season is going to create jobs on the broadcasting side as well which is obviously great um and the more the more deals like that come in the more big sponsorship deals come in the Barclays deal is up for renewal at the end of next season um that's going to drive papers to keep up their interest because they can capitalize on those deals and um get sponsorship deals of their own with those organizations for content and stuff too so um yeah uh, it's it's healthy it's healthy I think sometimes it's overestimated though like like I was saying a minute ago that one of the big issues that I have is that um, I can't be everywhere at once so I think fans can get a bit angsty oh well you've not covered Man United for three weeks or something and it's like well yes you know the the story at the moment is the relegation battle or the title running that's where I've got to be like I can't literally physically be everywhere at once I would love it if we had um, 12 reporters covering every single team and we're all out there but that's often not an option I had someone messaging me in the middle of the Champions League final on Twitter uh, asking me about um, why the FA Cup games weren't on telly or on the FA player and I was just like come on I just, I just ignored it I was like come on I'm, I'm literally at, you can see I've put this all over Twitter I'm at the Champions League final covering a game I, I'm not across this at the moment I, I'm very very tired and have taken four Covid tests already to get into this damn country like yeah I'm not on I'm not all over it um so I think there can be a bit of a um a misunderstanding about like just how hard it is for us as well to convince our editors to get stuff into like yes in an ideal world I would cover Charlton and um uh Sheffield United and stuff every single week but ultimately it's not my choice is what gets covered I have a say and my bosses are really really good and understanding and if there's a good story there they'll pick up on it but um it's hard to stay across the all of the stories of all of the different teams in all of the different leagues uh, you sort of need teams and fans and stuff to sort of pitch ideas at you a little bit more so that, you know, you can pick them up more easily because it's just very, you know, it's very difficult to stay across, as I'm sure you're very, very aware, multiple teams and leagues. I was going to say amen to all of that. <laughs> Everything that you've you've said, 10, ten full-time or, or thereabouts is in mainstream, I would say, is significantly ahead of of here. I mean, there are some mainstream now that are, you know, maybe we're men's soccer that are increasingly following the women's game, but I would not even top ahead. I mean, I can tell you there's no way that the count would get up till 10 
Um, so, so that is interesting. Um, well, you gave us, you gave us a little bit of a, a snippet there of your thoughts on England, which maybe we can, uh, we've got a little while to, to get serious about the Euro there for, uh, we can, we can talk more about that down the line, but I, before we go here, I want to get your thoughts on, um, the, the women's super league, um, super league feels like a loaded term now after everything, but, uh, the WSL, let's say, um, we had the, uh, the NWSL is dying narrative when the Americans went over there to England and, um, that was always ill-informed. Um, so I, I, I jokingly want to ask you if the WSL is dying, but I know that that would be silly. <laughs> um, but what is, you know, we've got the TV deal we hear about. We've got some, you know, in, in some ways we heard about clubs um, investing more and, and some of the bigger clubs anyway. But then you hear and read about, you know, what Casey Stoney went through and is complaining about. And um, some of those things, to be frank, sound very familiar to, to happenings over here. So, I mean, where do you think the league is? Where do you think it's going? There's a lot of this, which league's the best in the world debate. I don't know if you put it in there or not. We don't have to go that direction. But, um, you know, where do you think things stand for, for the FAWSL right now going into this 21 season or coming out of this 2020 to 21 season? Yes, good question again. It's um, it it's interesting in that I think the the big problem with the WSL is that almost everyone is singing from the same hymn sheet, and it felt like everyone was singing from the same hymn sheet at the start of this season and the sort of the across the season before that. Um, but mm, since the pandemic, we've sort of seen fractures come into that narrative. And I think it's the clubs that aren't necessarily singing from the same hymn sheet anymore. And that is because obviously, whether it be sort of like an, like never having properly been ideologically committed to the idea of women's football um, and the, the pandemic and the financial hit that they've taken has exposed that or whether it just be that, yes, they are committed, but the, the actual fi- financial impact is real, um, then, yeah, I think there's been a little bit of a fracturing in that way and it's undermined the fact that the um, uh, the 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 driver has been towards this Premier League Mark Two and having teams tied to Premier League clubs as if that is the way forward for the game. And I think that's sort of been um, adopted because it's enabled accelerated growth at the expense of sort of like the long term sustainability and. Um, and future of the league like so you know you look at the NWSL and the fact that you know it's splitting away from US soccer and that the clubs you know you've got Angel City coming in and um, and and all the various others Sacramento or whether it's going to be Sacramento or whatever it will be um, and uh, and Louisville and all of those um, coming to the fore um, they're all very much like whilst you know kind of have sister clubs and so brother clubs um are very much um sort of entities in their own right <laughs> leading the way in their own right and i think the the opposite is being done here and it's being done to the detriment of the development of the league because they're always going to play second fiddle um no matter what um no matter how much the women's game is growing and they're always going to be beholden to the men's in term like financially um so that's the sort of the problem with the Women's Super League at the moment. I thought, yeah, I, I mean, I agree. The 
the sort of obituaries of the NWSL last season were very, very premature um, and ridiculous um, because, I mean, I, you know, we've got most of those players returning to the league now and it was just about getting a bit of playing time, I think, in the run-up to the Olympics. Um, and if anything, they've sort of used the league a little bit, used it, abused it, got what they wanted and are off home and leaving their teams a little bit short in, in some cases, probably. Um but then you've also got, you know, obviously Ebony Salmon going over there now. Um, Rumours about Casey Stoney, um, Enya Luko being linked to Angel City. And, you know, these are some of the the best talents in three different areas of the game, playing management and, um, and sort of, you know, board level um, heading over to your league because... That's, I, I think, now where still professionalism is actually professional. Um, and here it's a little bit of a myth um, in the, the actual conditions of professionalism in terms of both playing facilities on the whole um, and training facilities, but also um, wages and conditions for players, you know, housing, all that kind of stuff, um, aren't really professional. Um I don't think any trade union would necessarily uh, consider them professional um, or labour union. Um, so, yeah, I think that is what is being caught out now in the UK a little bit. Um, and I think that gap will close. I think they will; those things will change and it will get better. But it's going to be a little bit slower um, than, than we would like, potentially. Um, the broadcast deal next season is great. And it will see, you know, broadcast facilities improved. But unless the clubs are actually going to up their investment, like behind the scenes, then I I don't think it will make a huge difference um, in the immediate to a sort of desire for um, players to come and play in this league, which is a shame um, because it is, it is a good league and it is competitive. But the conditions, you know, I think that's one of the things that there was a mistake in in the run up to the Champions League final is that you know we talked about the league that Barcelona are playing in as some you know kind of two tier league um, as if you know the WSL is this fully first fully professional league in Europe is um, is something to really sing about when the reality is is it is very much a two tier league as well possibly even a three tier league in that. You know the the playing the budget of Birmingham at the bottom is the equivalent of Peniel Harder's signing fee, um, and that's the reality. Like the the bottom is so so far away from the top, um, and I, I mean I hope it will get better, um, and I hope we'll see some of these clubs, the Man Uniteds, the Liverpools, the um, the uh, the Birminghams. Uh, sort of changing their mindset a little bit but at the same time I think as long as you're reliant on the pre-existing boardrooms and ownership uh, models of those men's clubs to suddenly find their uh, their equality badges and and whip out their 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 um their flags for diversity then we're we're like going to be waiting quite a long time um, so it's really about pressure on them to do it and and also change at, at that kind of level before we'd see serious, serious, like, inv- you know, kind of Leon level investment in um, in teams in England. So, 
yeah, I, I don't think the WSL is the best league in the world. I don't. I think I don't think there really is a best league in the world at the moment. I think everyone is sort of fighting for that title. Um, I think maybe in like three years' time we'll be able to say this, this whichever league it is, won the race. But I think we're sort of in uh, at the point like in the space race where no one's no one's set foot on the moon yet, but everyone's sort of vying to get there. Um, and it's only at that there'll be a specific point where we go, yeah, no this league is the superior league. Um, but yeah, I hate it. I hate the uh, the best league in the world narrative. I hate the, um, I hate, yeah, yeah, I just think it's, it's, it's not good to denigrate your neighbours <laughs> um, when we're essentially all vying for the same thing. Although I understand that it can also be a driver. It can, you know, be a motivating factor, can't it, if you've got, some assholes across the pond saying that they're the best <laughs> but yeah uh yeah so uh, there's there's huge potential for the women's super league to be a very good league but at the moment um yeah i'm quite worried about some of the teams i'm quite worried about man united without casey stoney because she was the big pull there um so it's gonna be interesting to see who they bring in in her place very interesting stuff uh, Susie rack from the guardian thanks so much for joining me no thanks it's been fun Thank you for listening to Kicking Back, a podcast brought to you by The Equalizer and now with Blue Wire Podcasts. If you've missed any of our great interviews from the past or you don't want to miss anything going forward, and I promise you that you don't, please subscribe on any platform you're listening. Please go ahead and rate and review our podcast. It really does help with visibility. That's that for this episode. We'll be back soon with another great guest from the world of women's soccer. 